0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Father God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together. Um, We pray that we would not neglect to do this, as is the habit of some, but that we would be gathering, encouraging, admonishing one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near, um, where we see our need for that more than ever in a world that is increasingly easy to be isolated. God, we need fellowship. We need you. God, you and yourself, you are a trinity. You are community, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Lord, you have made us in your image and in your likeness to be like you. Lord, we need One another. We need the body. And so, Lord, we're so grateful for an opportunity to come together to be encouraged and challenged by each other. And Lord, as we consider a few of your servants from a lifetime ago, we pray that we be encouraged and challenged by them, but not primarily by them, but by Christ in them. And Lord, it is of Christ's words we think of this morning that they so often thought of, that He who tries to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. We pray that that would be on our hearts this morning as we consider the lives of these five and the gates of splendor. pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Amen. There are five men, the blinker is failing, so if you wanna hit that first one for me, bud, that we're hoping to consider this morning, many of which you are familiar, um, perhaps only of one, and that's Jim Elliott. You hear a lot of Jim Elliot, you probably heard his famous quote, he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Um, But the story of the five men and their families that went to Ecuador uh, in the 50s, it was just the 1950s, so some 70 years ago, one lifetime ago, Uh, is really about five families, not just one man, Jim Elliott, but five families. So I'd like to give some homage and honor to them, and I think that there's things that we can be learning from each of these men. Very flawed, imperfect men, just trusting in Christ with their families to see the impossible made possible, reaching dark places of the world. But we'll start with Jim and then carry on from there, because Jim, in many ways, was the leader of the bunch, as you will see. Jim Elliott, if you want to hit the next picture, focus on him. Um, God led him since boyhood. He was truly, like Timothy, someone who came to know Christ at a young age. Um, He grew up in a home in Portland, Oregon, and learned that the book of all books was God's word. And its teaching was not necessarily to live a cloistered or dull life hidden away, you know, in a sanctuary somewhere. He was a man of adventure, even early on. He had a father who was a red-haired, iron-jawed Scotsman, raised them firmly. But every morning he would gather together all of his kids for breakfast. It's my fault. It's on mute. It's on mute. Maybe button. There we go. Sorry about that, that. Over breakfast. He would read God's word to them every morning. The kids would shudder in their seats and they'd do their thing. But slowly but surely, it seemed that bits of it began to sink in. Jim came to know the Lord at an early age. Come high school, he'd be carrying all his books. Of course, I guess in the 40s or whenever... It would have been late 30s, early 40s. They didn't have the backpacks that we have today. Who knows? They had satchels or stuff. But I guess they just carried around their books all the time. But always that could be found on the top of all of Jim's books was his Bible. It was always his Bible. Um, And so even from that age, he was seeking to live for the Lord and began directing his life towards missions towards the end of his time in high school. He felt like God was calling him to missions, but it was still very general at this time. It wasn't until he went to Wheaton College that some of that began to sharpen First and foremost, he began to limit his extracurricular activities. He had a fear of being occupied by the non-essentials and missing the essentials in life. He was a man of vision very quickly in his life. Writing home to his parents because he knew that they were about to get a really good report card for him and he didn't want them to get too excited about it, he had this to say, There is no such thing as attainment in this life. This is on a slide if you want to hit it. As soon as one arrives at a long coveted position, he only jacks up his desire for another notch or so and looks for a higher achievement, a process which is ultimately suspended only by the intervention of death. He was a man who understood the difference between worldly achievement, worldly gain, and that for Christ. He did go out for the wrestling team while he was in college but with a vision to just make his body a more useful vessel for Christ. He wanted to be in shape. He knew that missions would likely mean a third world country, something that would be demanding and challenging on his body, and he wanted to be fit for Christ. And then in college, he began to do some preliminary studies in Spanish, feeling that God was calling him perhaps to South America, somewhere in that region, something that would be speaking Spanish. Obviously, anywhere but Brazil would be mostly Spanish Um, It was about this time that Jim met his future wife, Elizabeth, that many of you are familiar with, around Christmas time in 1947. A friend brought him home around that time, and he wrote back to his parents. Elizabeth later found out about this and chuckled that he spoke of Elizabeth this way in a letter to his parents, that she's a tall, lean girl, far from beautiful, there's a guy who knows how to flirt, but with a queer personality drive that interests me. So he was interested. He was interested in her personality. Toward the end of the summer of 1950, Jim's general direction became more clear. He met with a former missionary from Ecuador, and over that time he showed and shared with him the need of the mission field in Ecuador and told him the dreaded stories of this tribe called the Achas. The Achas. Jim spent the next 10 days in fervent prayer and fasting over the, whether or not this is what God was calling him to, and he was led to assurance. That this is what God wanted for his life. His parents and those closest to him tried to talk him out of it. They didn't want him to go. They said, There's so many churches here in the United States who don't know the true meaning of God's word. Why don't you just stir up interest and desire for these things that you have in others so others will go? (laughs) Hear what Jim had to say. You can put the slide up there. I dare not stay while Quechus perish. It's one of the tribes there in Ecuador. What if the well-filled church and the homeland need stirring, they might ask. Well, they have the scriptures, Moses and the prophets, and a whole lot more. Their condemnation is written on their bank books and in the dust on their Bible covers. He's a young man of vision, and he felt like God was calling him. He dare not stay Why Quechus perish. But Jim knew that he was no good alone. He felt the need and desire for a few good men to go with him. He knew that it was good for him to have help. And so he was quickly praying that God would stir up another young man or two to go with him. And thought for years that that might be his college buddy, Ed McCauley. But Ed married, and he had a personal desire to go single and thought that jungle life, at least the first couple of pioneering years, the first pioneering year, would be a demanding call on a man. First Corinthians seven: the married man is concerned with the world's affairs and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. But the single man is concerned with the Lord's affairs, how to please the Lord. And so he felt like God specifically—not that it would be wrong to be married, but that God was specifically calling him to be single, at least for the first season of his time in missions. And so, enter Pete Fleming. There's a picture of him above. You want to turn to that for me, buddy? Pete was born in Seattle, Washington, in 1928. And early on, learned to appreciate the Bible and hold to it as the supreme rule of life and conduct. Those who knew him best in his late teens and twenties uh, quickly saw that he had an incredibly intelligent grasp of God's word and Scripture. And he came to know Christ actually through hearing a blind evangelist sharing the gospel. Blind evangelist. So Pete, like Enoch, walked with God at a very early age. Uh, He earned letters in high school and basketball and golf. Um, So he was a multi-sport athlete, um, sharp young man. And he got to know Jim while they both traveled east on a speaking tour at some evangelistic opportunities with some young folks. So he spent six weeks in a car traveling together. And over those six weeks, you can imagine the kind of conversations that would stir up over a a plethora of things. And a friendship was started between these two. And after some continued correspondence with Jim through letters, um, Pete decided um, through so much time of prayer and wrestling that God was calling him to the mission field as well. So Jim's hopes were fulfilled, and in 1952, they set sail from San Pedro to Ecuador. The early days on the mission field in Ecuador were not exactly as they expected because they went to the capital city at first. So they were not in the jungle yet as their hearts were set on. They were ready for the mosquitoes and flies and whatever may come. But they needed to learn the language. They only had a preliminary understanding of Spanish, and so they, they spent their first six months in complete immersive study of the language. As you can imagine, to go from just English to Spanish and speaking Spanish only all the time, it was quite the undertaking. It was a big trust God. But these were sharp guys that were pretty well equipped for it, quite honestly. Um, and so they spent their time there for six months doing that, and then eventually were able to head towards a previously abandoned mission station I'm going to butcher this. Um, Shandia. It's probably my American version of the poor pronunciation. Shandia. Uh, the oil companies had gotten a hold of many different areas down there in South America, particularly in the Ecuadorian area. There's oil, lots of opportunity, um, and as you'll see, exploitation for rubber later as well. And so there was a lot of abandoned stations and areas built up that was built by the Shell uh, Corporation, and the missionaries would come in and be able to take these over after time, and that was one of these as well. Um, It was here that Jim and Pete finally became full-fledged, full-time missionaries. They were so excited. And their first target group was the Quechas, the very ones that Jim was praying for. Dare not stay while Quechas perish. They were much more peaceful people than many of their neighbors. There was first the head-hunting Hovaros to the south. You may be familiar with them. They're the ones that like to shrink the heads of the people after they behead them. Um, And they have the tiny little heads shaking around on a keychain. And then there was the feared Akas, of course, that they had heard much about to the northeast. Uh, As a people, the Indians were often subject to a variety of debilitating diseases um, and sicknesses uh, that come along with jungle life. uh, Intestinal parasites. They were not uh, exposed to the flu or smallpox or uh, chickenpox, rather. I don't know about smallpox. Smallpox gets about everybody no matter what. Um, but they didn't have the immunities for many of these things that came with eastern culture or with the europeans which obviously is what wiped out many of the indians of north america as well Um, and so they were often very fearful of the white man not only for that but for also many other reasons as well one of the men observed during their first time period of time with the queach this that the indians are a people caught between two cultures it's on a slide above disappearing, the disappearing one of the forebears, in the rising white man's world of today. And so they often, the Indians found themselves in the struggle to hold on to their old previous culture and the influence of the new culture to come, the European Western culture that was influencing itself, industrial culture. This tension was often held within the tribes for all the Indians. The younger. Uh, Indians were often very eager to learn anything new and were very open to missionaries. But quickly, the influencers of tribes would begin to push back after a few weeks of initial interest and curiosity. The witch doctors and the elders of all tribes had the greatest amount of influence, and they were set in old ways and typically would bring things to a halt very quickly. And they began to find that. But they began to get favor with the the Quechas after one particular night. As we mentioned, they are often subject to many diseases and debilitating sicknesses. And one such night came, a feverish knocking at the door, and the Quecha Indians came running out of desperation to the missionaries because they had, one, seen their love for them, and two, been exposed to the incredible powers of penicillin and antibiotics. And they realized that there was hope, you know, if they just got stuck with a needle. They'd stick us, stick us, they would say. We need to be stuck. And um, They didn't think that there was any good that could be done unless they were stuck by a needle because they would just witness how people would miraculously suddenly get better within 24 to 48 hours after being stuck. So they brought brought several children to them, or actually brought them to the tribe because the children were not able to travel, and one young child in particular, um, they insisted would be stuck. So they did so. Jim gave a shot of penicillin, but out of haste and anxiety, when they did not begin to see the child recover quickly enough, they brought in the witch doctors instead, And the witch doctors immediately uh, refused to allow Jim and Pete to continue any treatment uh, with the child, which they would have needed multiple doses in order to truly recover from whatever it was that was ailing them. Um, But they did allow Jim and Pete to stay, but they shoved them off into a corner of one of the hut. And for heat um, and to keep the bugs away, there was often fires in the middle of these huts. And so you can imagine the entire room just filling with smoke. Um, And they would begin to hear the chants. And this was in the middle of the night, so they're Moving in and out of consciousness, even in this moment. And the only thing that eventually woke them uh, early in the morning, three or four, was the wailing cries of a mourning mother. While meditating on the third small coffin that they had to build that morning, one of them said this it's on a slide. These happenings gave insight into the life of these people. Superstition and fear bound them tightly. Would the New Testament answer the longing of the Quicha for freedom from fear? peace of heart, deliverance from evil spirits, the missionaries prayed and discussed these problems. But still, they felt themselves foreigners, felt that they would always be foreigners. The Indian himself must be the answer, they thought. He must learn the scriptures, he must be taught, and in turn, teach his own people. They saw the need for discipleship and to raise up indigenous people of their own to reach their own people, but would God do it? How would he do it? So to this end, Jim and Pete reopened a missionary school that was in that area with a desire that if they were to offer free education for the young ones, they could use God's word as the manuscript to teach them how to read and write. So every day they had the opportunity to expose the young children of the Quichas to the word of God. And they began to see great favor amongst them, many of which began to come to know the Lord over that first year. Next enter, or sorry, I have one more Uh, quote here. While they were getting to share God's word with the Quechas, every single day it began to burden their heart for deeper into the jungle for those that they know had never heard the word of God. This is what Pete had to say about this. He says, the thought scares me at times, but I'm ready. We've believed God for miracles, and this may include the Akkas. And so even then, even in their first year with the Quechas, they were already thinking towards the Akas, the people that they know had never heard the name of Christ. It has gotten, or excuse me, it has got to be by miracles in response to faith. No lesser expedient is a shortcut. Oh God, guide, Pete said. Next enter Ed McCauley and his wife. Ed McCauley was the oldest son of a Milwaukee bakery uh, executive. I think I have a picture of him there. Thank you. He grew up in the Midwest At home that knew something about sacrifice for the Lord and service. His father was regularly preaching, traveling around the country, constantly talking to his co-workers every time he got an opportunity, even his own employees, about Christ. So he was a working man, he was a professional man, but a man who loved the Lord and was a lay leader very often. Um, Ed went to Wheaton College. You may notice that was the same college that Jim went to. So that's when him and Jim met. He was there in the fall of nineteen forty-five. Uh, but he didn't initially go with the idea of missions whatsoever. He went in for um, it was economics and business was his first two majors. And it was there that he became a star athlete at Wheaton College. He was six foot two, one 190 pounds, blazing fast. And that's almost average these days in college sports. But back then, that was really something. Um, he was a two-sport athlete, track and field and football both. His coach regularly said this of him. He's always coming through in the impossible when the chips were down. So Ed was very, very popular. Everybody loved Ed in college. His best platform, actually, though, was public speaking. He was an incredible orator. Uh, Matter of fact, he won a 1949 national championship, had over 10,000 students that competed in it for oratory. Uh, uh, His senior year, he was elected class president. He went completely unopposed. His brother said, I frankly doubt if anyone even entertained the idea of proposing anyone else for the position. It was a foregone conclusion. Very popular, very beloved. It seemed that Ed was destined for greatness. So Ed entered uh, into studies for the bar. Entered into Marquette University and he was ready to become a lawyer. He was going to be destined for greatness. He took a night job as a hotel clerk in order to have extra time for reading and study for the bar exam. Thinking he's going to have a lot of extra time to prepare for the bar exam. And then every night he found himself reading God's word instead. This is what Ed had to say to a letter to Jim shortly after this time. Since taking this job, things have happened. So it should be on a slide. I've been, st- I've been spending my free time studying the word. Each night, the Lord seems to get a hold of me a little bit more. Night before last, I was reading in Nehemiah. I finished the book and I read through it again. Here was a man who left everything as far as position was concerned to do a job that nobody else could handle. And because he went, the whole remnant back in Jerusalem got right with the Lord. Obstacles and hindrances fell away and a great work was done. Jim, I couldn't get away from it. The Lord was dealing with me. I have one desire now, to live a reckless life of abandon for the Lord and to put all my energy and strength into it. Like we said, he'd been friends with Jim since college. And Ed and Jim shared a short period of time it's kind of like boot training for the both of them that, once again, they went on a speaking tour. You notice Jim kind of did this with lots of men back in college. And they were sharing the gospel with a, a group of uh, tent meetings um, and children's classes. Um, and they got to do some uh, radio evangelism during this time as well. Now, just prior to this, uh, Ed also accepted an invitation up to Pontiac, Michigan to do another little speaking opportunity up there. Once again, God had more in store for him than he initially planned. It was there that he met his future wife, Mary Lou. She was a dark haired pianist in the church that he was there to speak at. Um, and he did get to share the gospel, but he walked away with a lot more than I think he gained. Um, during his trip with Jim, as they were doing the te- me- tent meetings, he sent a lot, a lot more letters back to Mary Lou than he did mom and dad. Um, it was at this time in a letter that he said to her I am praying definitely for two things. First, that the Lord will give us wisdom in our relationship even in the business of letter writing. And second, that as long as we've got anything to do with each other, that each of us would be an influence upon the other for closer fellowship with the Lord. I don't mean that we'd be preaching to each other, but just that our attraction to each other would be a means of attracting us more and more to the Lord. It's beautiful. He says, I know that's the way you feel too. His feelings for her grew. He was wholehearted in wanting to marry her. So he sent her one last letter. You can get a little bit of his personality here. Warning her, are you sure you really want to do this? Here's what he had to say. One month from today, you will have lost all freedom and will be subject to my iron rule, my unflinching law, and my cruel command. You have exactly 31 days to reconsider. Do you think you'll really be able to put up with me for the rest of your life? It won't be easy. There'll be plenty of times that you'll wonder why on earth you married me. Have you reconsidered? But then he finishes strong. Now let me tell you that I love you with all my heart. Well, Mary Lou did not reconsider. They were married, and on December 10th of 1952, so just months later in the same year, they themselves sailed along with an eight-month-old son, Stevie, for Ecuador. Upon first arrival, they too needed to enter language training, and so it was still another six months before they were able to join Jim and Pete on the mission field. But about six months later, Ed took a 12-day visit to meet with Jim and Pete, and this is what he had to say in a letter back to his folks. should be on the slide above. During these 12 days after viewing the Indian boys in school, remember they opened up the school, and the endless lines of people seeking medical aid, remember they discovered the result of penicillin, after visiting Indian homes and hearing the weird chant of witch doctors and the hopeless cry of death mourners, I praise God for bringing us to this land to work with these people. I pray that we might be faithful to our calling and that God would use us to bring many of these Indians to himself. So shortly after Ed and Mary Lou joined Jim and Pete, preaching the gospel to the Queechas, and eventually moving uh, on to the city of Shandai with them. And then later in 1953, um, Jim and Pete decided, okay, this singleness thing is really hard, and went back to the States and got married and then came right back. Um, and so that's when Elizabeth Elliot and Pete's wife joined them. Next, I want to talk about Nate Saint. Throw up Nate. Nate might be my favorite. I love Jim. Nate's a neat guy. There's more that I can't even get into about Nate, but man, I love this guy. Nate was the man who literally changed modern day missionary life in the jungle. He helped pioneer actually what makes jungle missions possible today. And much of that came with modern, you know, development and aviation. Modern development and aviation is what made jungle life, missionary life more tenable and doable. Um, It was completely brand new of life, new way of life for missionaries. You can imagine previously the missionaries that were operating in jungles, they were in, um, I mean, infested huts full of rats and bugs and everything else that you could possibly imagine. Cut off from civilized life, um, any help of medical need if an emergency were to pop up for days, weeks, or even months at a time. And the airplane changed all of that. And Nate changed all of that. Because even when the airplane existed, there was still the problem of how do you get it there? There's no airstrips in all of these places. And he was actually much of what helped pioneer how to create airstrips out of these jungles and how to cut uh, enough down in order to create you know, safe enough places. I mean, very risky ways of him bringing in these tiny little light planes that needed you know, very little room to get off and to land, um, but still be able to bring enough supplies to help these missionaries out. It was his burden and desire in order to lighten the physical demand on the missionaries so that they could devote themselves more wholeheartedly to the spiritual needs of the Indians. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, he was a man of ingenuity. He developed a special frame underneath these very light planes in order for them to be able to carry more cargo. So you can imagine a light plane cannot carry much. So he started stripping it of all the extra frills. The padded seats, got to go. They weigh more. The hubcaps that, you know, look better, got to go. It collects mud on it. Uh, so anything that wasn't needed, he, he, he wasn't having it. Uh, that way he could bring more supplies to the missionaries. Uh, he even, in his ingenuity, created a backup fuel system that became standard for all MAF planes, uh, all MAF planes, which was a Mission Aviation Fellowship. That was the mission that these men were all with. Um, and then, lastly, he created something that ended up becoming incredibly strategic in their mission to the Akkas, uh, something called the Spiraling Line Technique. The spiraling line technique. So what would happen is, is often there was nowhere to land to get to any of these Indians. And it was incredibly dangerous to make first contact with them. And so they wanted a safe way in order to maybe give them a gift or try to make some kind of initial contact without actually physically being close enough to get speared (laughs) or something like that. Um, and so what he figured out how to do, because he just had an incredible mind for thinking through these things is they would find a spot where they wanted something to go. But if you you can imagine, if you're going 60 miles an hour and you just chuck something out the side of a plane, you're not going to be very successful in landing it anywhere. And if you slow down and get too low, they may try to throw something at you. And so what he discovered is that if he gets above wherever he wants something to be, say like a hut in the middle of a jungle. And he rips the plane into an incredibly aggressive spiral and then lowers out a 1,500-foot foot line with a leather basket on the end of it that the drag of the line would overcome the centrifugal force of the circle and it would, it would quietly and stillly just sit in the middle. And he could lower down whatever he wanted, whether it be a gift or some form of communication, maybe picture of a missionary, somebody who's going to come see them. And then he even figured out, you know what? That line can actually be a telephone cord. And we'll put a telephone at the other end of it. And I can actually talk it on telephone down to a missionary on the ground, even if I can't land. I mean, just incredible ingenuity that completely um, reinvigorated and energized and made deeper missions into the jungle possible that previously were just not tenable or safe for families. We've all heard the phrase, behind every great man is a great woman. And Nate was no different. He married a woman named Marge. Marge, rather. Marge. Um, and Nate would give courtesy flights to all the different missionaries that were constantly coming in, as you can imagine. Tons of missionaries, in and out, in and out, in and out. Well, somebody needed a host to all these families and all these people as they were coming in. And that was Marge. She never knew if she was making dinner for two or for 12, so she would take whatever she was making and double it every day. Um, and she was just incredible at hosting everybody who was coming in. They obviously had to build a bigger uh, compound. or you know, It wasn't just a small hut for them because they were always in the need of being able to facilitate and help the missionaries and those who were coming to visit. In addition, she handled all of the radios. Um, there had to be constant communication so that they knew that the airplane was okay that Nate was doing okay and they had radio systems in between all the different missions as you can imagine there's just these different pockets of missionaries and all these different tribes isolated miles and miles of thick jungle in between but she was radioing in between hey what do you need do you need supplies today do we need to fly to you and in five minutes Nate could get somewhere that would take days of travel through thick jungle so he could just fly over to them and they were all cutting down places for the plane to be able to land But Nate's appreciation for Marge and her role was once expressed in a letter like this. How glad I am to have you working by my side always. I felt that I personally had sufficient snort and drive for the sprints, but God knew that I needed a flywheel to set me for the long haul. She is what helped him um, live for the long haul on the mission field. He was no good alone. He was also a man that had vision that was steeled during his time of war. It's actually when he learned to become a pilot, it was with the Air Force. And it was during this time that he also learned the value of being expendable. Uh, Many of his captains and generals told them that in order for freedom to be maintained, the other soldiers knew that they had to take part in a willingness to be expendable for the price of freedom. Nate was quick to draw that parallel, obviously, over to spiritual things. Similarly, the Lord Jesus asks us, he said, to pay the price for the lost to be set free from the freedom or from the bondage of their sin and death. But often this call goes unanswered. The price just feels too high. But we are not left without an example. God himself was willing to sacrifice his own son in order for us to be free from our bondage to sin and death. How we also not follow in his footsteps, he said. Next is a man named Roger Yondren. Roger would be a guy that we would look at and just think, man, there's a lanky guy. Um, you can't see all of them, but he was really tall and lanky and uh, actually afflicted with polio at a young age, but overcame it and actually still played multiple sports uh, in high school. Grew up on a ranching family in Montana, um, but still got three scholarships to college. So a tough, tough guy. Um, eventually he enlisted in the military in 1943. So once again another military man, and he became a paratrooper. This guy became a war hero. He was an assistant to an army chaplain, wrote back to his mom at one point saying this, the happiest days of my life was the day I accepted Jesus Christ as my savior for the remission of my sins and duly repented for, and with the help of God, I hope and pray for the faith and strength to glorify our father through my daily living as a witness and follower of Christ. God began to give him a vision for missions. While well, his time at war, he survived the Rhine jump in 1944. He was decorated for his actions in the Battle of the Bulge. And uh, as we said, his vision began to grow from modern missions, and he wanted to live life all out for Christ as he did in the military after his time at war. So when he returned home in 1946, he enrolled in Northwestern University in order to prepare for the mission field. It was there that he met his future wife, Barbara notice these guys while on mission while on the way god was giving them what they needed um, and a bride more times than not in order to for them to actually be able to do what they were being called to do they were not alone in this at all so in 1950 they enrolled in a missionary medicine course as you notice medicine is very important for this they were engaged and married by 51 and on their way to ecuador with a six-month-old by 1953 so many of them going with kids you see his, mission, his ministry would be to the headhunters, the Havaros, and it was incredible preparation for him, for the akas They were an incredibly violent people, as we mentioned before. Witchcraft, sorcery, hate, violence had deep roots in the hearts of these people. Their children were taught every night to recite the names of the people they're supposed to hate as they go to bed. That was just a daily occurrence for them. Imagine, you sit down and pray, tell your kids you love them, and for them, they would sit down and tell them the names of everybody they're supposed to hate. Inter-family feuds, wars within their own tribe, not to mention other tribes, were just a regular daily occurrence. If someone were to be mad at somebody, steal something from somebody, murder was an easily acceptable answer. They lived in constant fear of somebody else hunting their own life, even people in their own tribe. Not too much unlike the Yonkers. Speaking of Roger, Nate Sate once said of him, Roger's one of the few missionaries I know who display a real sense of urgency in the task of winning souls. An urgency it was, because he never knew how long he had with any of these Indians. After some time of ministering to the Havaros, not really seeing a lot of fruit, quite honestly, and becoming a little depressed by it, he grew a heart for their mortal enemies, the Ashuras. The Ashuras. I'm probably butchering that. But Raj moved closer to them, eventually gained enough favor to get invited into the tribe, and a terrible flu outbreak happened, many of whom whom looked like they were going to die. So then who flew in with medicine? Nate Saint. So Nate's coming in on his way to drop off some uh, medicine, some penicillin to him. Raj is freaking out, just needing this, because literally he's trying to hold the whole tribe together as everybody is nearly on their deathbed. And on his way, Nate is traveling once again to somewhere they've never been before, Raj is ministering to the Havaros, gains a heart for their mortal enemies that have never heard the gospel, so he goes to a part of the jungle that's never been gone before. They've never been able to find the Yakas, by the way, up to this point. And now Nate Saint is flying to a part of the jungle never, and he notices something in a faraway distance. He doesn't know what it is, just feels like the Lord's leading him. And so even though Rogers is in a lot of hurry, he's like, I, I need to take five minutes and go over here. And he finds the first hut. Of the Akkas. They've never seen the Akkas before. So on his way to this, it was actually their first discovery of where the Akkas were hiding in the jungle. They'd only heard of them, they'd never been able to actually find them, and nobody would dare tell them where they were, because all the other Indians feared them so much. Speaking of the Akkas before the sighting, Jim Elliott said this: he was a bold guy. One of these days we're gonna spot those boys, and from then on, they'll be marked men. He was a leader. I think that's on the slide. Yeah, thank you. But now they had spotted the Akas and their hearts were set for them, so they began to pray fervently. Okay, we know where they are. Lord, would you open a door? Would you open a door? Would you open a door? So they're seeing favor or not seeing favor depending on, you know, who they were and who they were ministering to, but their hearts were still for deeper parts of the jungle. About the Akkas, Nate Sate wrote this. For a number of years, the Akkas have constituted a hazard to explorers, an embarrassment to the Republic of Ecuador, and a challenge to missionaries of the gospel. The history of the Akas goes all the way back to 1541. Francisco Pizarro, you history buffs may know of him, he's the guy who ended the Inca Empire. So this is no pushover of a guy. Um, He's an explorer, but he also had armies at his will. And he sent one of his most adventurous lieutenants to follow the Amazon to its mouth, down deep into the jungle. He had hundreds of soldiers with him. 97 lived. Some of them died due to hazards, but almost all were killed. By hazardous hostile Indians. We now know those hostiles to be the ancestors of the Akas. Later followed some Jesuit mini- uh, missionaries who were all killed by hostile Indians. We all know now it was the ancestors of the Akas. So over 200 years passes, no one dares goes to that part of the jungle again, and the Akas are left alone as they wanted it. But then came the mid 1800s, the prospects of money and prosperity. And the the rising demand for rubber changed everything, of which the Amazon was fertile with, and entered what was called the the rubber hunters, the rubber hunters. These men were motivated by one thing, money and greed, and cared not for the lives that got in the way. And so they destroyed and murdered on their way to get what they wanted. One record spoke of the encounters between the rubber hunters and the Akas is this, civilized savages against unbaptized savages. It was a great war. And this only steeled their opinions towards the white man and further grew their hatred of anybody who looked anything like us, regardless of what their intentions were. But against all odds, Nate Saint had now spotted them, and these men's hearts were growing for the Akkas, but it seemed impossible. One of the earliest steps, Ed and Mary Lou you remember we were there with them at, with uh, ministering to the Quechas at Shandia decided to move to a previously abandoned station that they now knew was much closer to Aka Indian territory called Aranjo Arahuno, maybe more like Arahuno. I think it's a soft J right the Spanish soft J's Arahuno. This became a new strategic beachhead for them as they were beginning to hopefully be able to minister to the Akas, getting closer and closer and closer. Jim Elliott saw the need for them to learn the Akka dialect, though, right? Everybody wasn't speaking regular Spanish. They all had their own dialects. And there was a young lady named Dayuma who had been ran out of the tribe years before due to her family being murdered in her family feuds. And she was now living in a different part of the jungle and she was reachable and open and, and not dangerous. So he went to learn a couple of simple phrases like, I like you, I want to be your friend, let's get together, I want to approach you. This was a huge win for these men. To now feel like they had a way to be able to at least communicate in basic form with the Akkas, it was a huge win for them. Feeling like they were getting past at least part of the barriers to reaching this tribe for Christ. Next, the men had a growing desire that there would be at least five. They thought they needed five men to do this mission well. They were going to be in hostile territory, potentially. They were going to be separated from an airstrip. No supplies, no help. They, they needed more men than usual for this mission, they felt. Up to this point, three were committed. Jim, Ed, and Nate, the pilot. Nate, Pete was still praying over it. He was really wrestling over whether or not God was calling him to this. But they needed a fifth, and that entered in Roger, As you remember, Roger didn't know them from the years before. Roger was kind of the untimely one here um, that was entered in. And of course, he was connected through Nate. Nate knew all the missionaries because he was flying around to all of them. And so on Nate's suggestion, they said, yeah, okay, talk to Roger about it. He talked to Roger about it. He immediately agreed. Let's do it. He'd already been ministering to headhunters anyways. He was ready. Um, And so he immediately agreed. And so next, Nate Saint, along with other men at alternating times, began searching more and more for more huts of the Aka's, trying to discover where more of them are. So they're flying around, and they're finding them more and more and more. They ended up finding about a handful of different places, you know, where Akkas were settled. Uh, They weren't sure how many there were, but it was rumored at this time there'd be anywhere from 500 to 1,000 of them. So not a lot of people, right? Only about 500 to 1,000. But before long, they had found enough, and it was time for them to hopefully initiate friendly communication. And how were they going to do that? The spiraling line technique. The spiraling line technique. And so what Nate had developed, they used in order to gently and non-invasively be able to drop down little gifts to the Akas. And so slowly but surely, they would drop down gifts to the Akas. And increasingly, they became increasingly receptive and open and excited about them coming um, to the point where they felt like, okay... Like, we can, we can try to go and encounter these people now. And they did it on the same day of the week, multiple weeks, week after week after week after week. They just do it one day a week, one day a week. And so they were slowly trying to warm and pray open the hearts of the Akkas to them. Uh, they would drop a machete blade covered safely with material, cooking pots, uh, toy-carved planes, so they would associate them with the airplane flying above. Eventually, they even took Polaroids, uh, pictures of themselves, and dropped that as well, so that they would be able to recognize their faces once they met them face-to-face. And so they uh, eventually felt like they were being friendly. And then happened this, the Akas started returning gifts. And they would grab the line and they would tie something back to it for them to pull back into the plane. And that was a, a signal for them, these, these guys are open. These, these, this, is the, this is the friendliest they have ever been to white people before. There may be an open door for the gospel. And so as they prayed about it, their wives agreed, though they take as much precaution as possible, it was time. It was time for them to try to make a face-to-face encounter. They needed to find somewhere they could land, though, to get more close. It was so isolated, it was so far. And they were able to find a beach, they affectionately named Palm Beach, along a river, as you imagine, the sand was very soft, so they deflated the tires so that it wouldn't sink quite so much, and they were able to land and start to build a shelter eventually, but they needed to decide on a day, and they decided that that day would be Tuesday, January 3rd, 1956. Many of them got there in 52 or 53, so it's been a few years. They've seen successful or unsuccessful missions with their other Indians, but they want to push deeper, so they made their plans. It was around Christmas. Many of the families were together. They were worshiping. They were praying. The wives were talking very literally about the prospect in a very vulnerable way of becoming widows. They were very aware of this, That she said. And the men were making their plans and arrangements, packing their bags. I mean, it was just days before they're set to leave. Here's what Elizabeth wrote about the very possibility of becoming a widow. What would we do if this were to happen? God gave us peace of heart and confidence that whatever might happen, his word would hold. God's leading was unmistakable up to this point. Each of us knew that when we married our husbands, that there would be no question about who came first. God and his work held first place in each life. It was the condition of true discipleship, and it became devastatingly meaningful now. Nate Saint, sitting at his typewriter around Christmas, penned these words when considering and praying about their going. As we weigh the future and seek the will of God, does it seem right that we should hazard our lives for just a few savages? As we ask ourselves this question, we realize that it is not the call of the needy thousands. Rather, it is the simple intimation of the prophetic word that there shall be some from every tribe in his presence at the last day. And our, help, our heart felt that it is pleasing to him that we should interest ourselves in making an opening into the Akka prison for Christ. Continuing, he said... As we have a high old time this Christmas, enjoying ourselves this Christmas, may we know, may we who know Christ hear the cry of the damned as they hurtle headlong into a Christless night without ever a chance. May we be moved to compassion as our Lord was. He saw the crowds, he had compassion on them for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He turned to his disciples and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into his harvest field, right? May we be moved with compassion as our Lord was. May we shed tears of repentance for those who have failed to bring, that we have failed to bring out of darkness. So the day came, It's January 3rd, 1956. Elizabeth notes that as her husband walked away from the hut, he did not look back. He set his face to Jerusalem like Flint, right? He did not look back. He who sets his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of my service. He did not look back. They went to Palm Beach. You try not to like him. You get so attached. So they were dropped off on January 3rd. Entire day was spent just building camp, right? They couldn't really do anything else. They had to build shelters up above the ground. There's cougars. There's, you know, all sorts of different jungle animals that would have been hazardous to them. So they had to build shelters up above the ground. So it took them the entire day to do so. Nate took multiple flights, first dropping off the men, then doing several um, different flights for cargo. And so it took just a whole day getting ready. On January 4th, they spent that day using all the language they learned from Dayuma, shouting into the woods, trying to get them to come out to them. It wasn't until uh, day four on January 6th, they had almost given up any hope that anyone would come. And then finally three. Finally three showed up. There's two women, one man. They spent the whole day with them. Um, they had no stinking idea what half the time they were saying. Uh, but they were very friendly eventually and warmed up to them. And they were so hopeful. By the end of the day, they left. They even put the guy in the plane because he showed incredible interest in the plane and flew him over all the other Aka huts so he could shout down at them, Hey, come to the beach. Come to the beach. And they weren't sure it was going to work because the next day nobody showed up. But eventually, um, Nate Saint and his plane spotted 10 guys on their way. They were so excited. They radioed back to their wives. They're going to be here by noon. We'll check in again at 4.30. And they, uh, they even said they're, they're going to be here in time for afternoon service. They're so hopeful. 4.30 came and went. There was no word back. Nothing but silence, which had never happened before. Nate... And his wife, Marge, had always been in communication every hour on the hour, anytime he was over on a flight. So this was very irregular. No one slept well that night. January 9th, word got out. They began searching. They sent up a backup pilot to try to get uh, any kind of eye shot on them. Um, and when he got to the beach, he devastatingly saw that um, Nate Saint's plane was completely destroyed. All the material had been ripped off of it, and this was their first visual evidence that something was probably terribly wrong. Some of the local Indians uh, from Ed and Pete and Jim's uh, previous mission started searching for them at the risk of their own lives. Remember, they never would dare go into Aka territory. One of the men that Ed McCauley led to Christ himself found Ed. That was the first body that they found. Eventually, over days of searching, they found all of them at one point or another, though one body was lost to floods. And they were buried right there at Palm Beach. Their blood was spilt for these people... But all saints are blood-bought saints, not just the Aucas. It would seem impossible that they would ever be able to get to these people. Though they sent 10 people seemingly peacefully down the beach, later they found out that there was a brigade of others secretly going through the jungle with lances because they knew that Nate would be able to see them. There was no real reason as to why. They weren't sure what happened, what went wrong. All they knew is that these men had suffered a terrible loss and now left to pick up the pieces were their widows and their children. But there was no anger. There was no desire for retribution or hatred or revenge in these widows' lives. Their hearts were for the Akkas as well. It was their desire as well to see these people come to know Christ. And there's outpouring of news of how God used this all over the world. In Brazil, a group of Indians fell to their knees as they heard the news, and they cried out to God over their own lack of concern for their fellow Indians. In Rome, an American official wrote back to the wives, I knew your husband. He was to me the ideal of what a Christian should be. In England, an Air Force major immediately began making plans to join the MAF and to replace Nate Saint himself. In Africa, a missionary wrote back, Our world and our work will never be the same. We knew two of the men, and their lives have left their marks on ours. In Italy, off the coast, a naval officer was shipwrecked at sea. Thinking of Jim's words at one point came to his mind, when it comes time to die, make sure all you have to do is die. It was in that moment that he realized he was not right with God. He cried and repented over his sins, and he was saved. In Iowa, an 18-year-old boy prayed for a week in his room upon hearing the news and told his parents, I'm turning my life completely over the Lord. I want to take the place of one of those five. Within the queeches, the place that Jim, Ed, and Pete labored for years, several surrendered their lives to God over hearing the news to preach to their own people, and even the Akas if he chooses. Remember, they realized God would need their own people. They would need their own people. Only eternity would be able to measure the number of prayers that were impacted over the years. And efforts continued with the Akkas. Immediately, they resumed flights. Immediately, they began sending gifts again, wanting the Akkas to know there was no desire for revenge, no desire for retribution whatsoever, which is what they thought would happen. That was their way of life. We murder you, you murder us. Jump forward three years. It's now November 1958. November 1958. Elizabeth Elliot is living in a hut, 10 feet in Akka territory, from two of the seven men who killed her husband and their believers. So what happened? What happened? Upon hearing the news of Nate Saint and the other five, Nate's sister, Rachel, grows a burden for the Akas and immediately moves to Ecuador and starts meeting with Dayuma, the dispossessed uh, Akka, if you remember, and starts learning their language, starts learning their language. Well, Dayuma came to Christ. Dayuma comes to Christ. In November 1957, 22 months after the five were killed, none of the wives had left. They stayed in Ecuador, continued to mission in the areas where they were missioning, and then God answered these long-awaited prayers. Two of the women, the first two women that came to Palm Beach, came to the Quechua village looking for them. They met with Elizabeth and Rachel, they discussed, and they, those two women were introduced to Dayuma, who had just come to Christ. In three weeks, Dayuma and those two women go back to the Aka village and talk to them about these friendly outsiders that they have come to know and love. It almost took a year, but finally, on October 8th of 1958, they were invited to come live with them at the Aka tribe. And within a month, two of the seven that killed her husband had come to Christ. Elizabeth Elliott was strangely silent on the granular details of how this all came to be. She just said this. How did this come to be? It's on a slide. Only God who made iron swim, who caused the sun to stand still, and in whose hands is the breath of every living thing, only this God, who is our God forever and ever, could have done it. May the God of such miracles encourage our hearts and challenge us to bring light in dark places. Let me pray. Father God, we are so grateful for saints who have gone before us, Lord, we are so challenged by their lives, but Lord, more so, we are challenged by you, Lord Jesus. That they were just walking in your footsteps, they were, Lord, may we follow them as they followed you, Christ. Yes, their blood was spilt for the sake of others, but Lord Jesus, your blood was spilt for all of your people. And Lord, um, we may not live as extreme lives, seemingly, as some of these saints, but God, you have brought dark places people in darkness in all of our lives. And Lord, we all have an opportunity to preach the gospel in those dark places, whether it be in our families or in our workplaces or other wherever you may lead us, God. We pray that, Lord, we would be so ambitious and willing to step out on faith, to be rejected, to be not liked, even hated, so that you may be loved, God. We know that you're not pitiful and begging for people to love you, that, God, you call out and demand in darkness that hearts of stone become flesh, and it is. We just pray that, Lord, we would be humble, willing servants to follow in your footsteps and be obedient to the call that you have called us, God, to preach the gospel to all nations, and then the end will come. We love you, Father. We pray these things in Christ's name.